As your pastor, I have two concerns for you and for each person that I meet. The first concern is that everybody that I know or have any influence will find saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's my first and fundamental concern for you. The second concern I have for you, perhaps the only other concern I do have for you, is that you will continue to grow in that faith. And because of your increasing interaction with Jesus, will be transformed into the kind of people who accurately reflect the character of Jesus. Your spiritual growth is critical. And those are my, my two concerns. And I think because those are my two concerns, there are some things that we do here that I don't talk about all that frequently, but I think are critical for those two areas. One thing you'll notice, uh, should you grab a bulletin off of the glass panels in the back is that every week there's a sermon guide that's published. This sermon guide is designed to ask you some questions and to give you a chance to reflect on the passages of scripture that were used in the service later in the week. Many of our small groups use these guides to guide the conversation uh, that the small groups have when they meet, uh, but you don't have to be a part of the small group to uh, use this sermon guide to direct your thinking. The second thing I want to say is that um, we have space in our small groups. Our discovery is that folks grow best when they are in conversation about their faith. The more they consider it, the more they think about it, the more they pray and invite God to do his transforming work in them, they find success, they find God attends that because those who earnestly seek him Find him. And so if you would like to be in a small group, please call the office. There's space available in several of our small groups. They meet at different times and we can try to get you fitted into one that makes sense for you. Point three about our common life. We've been talking on the staff recently about how we strengthen marriages in our congregation. And in the past year, Gary, Tanya and I have all, got, have all gotten certified in a particular method of marriage enrichment. And we would like to at least entertain the idea of having a monthly marriage conversation for couples. Probably something we would do on a Friday night, we'd all get together here at the church, talk across a range of topics for maybe 45 minutes or so, and then send you out with a list of questions to continue the conversation. So maybe you go out to dinner afterwards and you have more conversation about the topic that we discussed, probably six or seven of these nights across the year. But we don't wanna do all the work of preparing it if it's not something that interests you. And so on all of the usher stations in the lobby today, there's a little piece of paper that says, hey, I think we might be interested in that. And if we get seven couples who think that they'd be interested in doing something like that, we'll forge ahead and do that. Now, I would just say, gentlemen, that if you would like an opportunity to get in the good graces of your wife, that you go get the paper and invite her into that conversation. Because my suspicion is um, she may not want to try to have to twist your arm to do it. But if you would initiate in this area, I think it would be helpful to you in a variety of ways. The last thing I want to say before uh, I begin preaching today, you say, you're not preaching yet? No, not yet. 
is that on the 29th, we have a special service planned. It's gonna be a great day. We're gonna have visitors from across the New England District Church of the Nazarene here. The president of ENC is going to be here. And part of the emphasis of the day is try to gather the whole congregation back on one day so we actually can see each other. Because we sort of have this feeling that often we're missing like ships passing in the night. We don't see everybody every Sunday, so we don't know where people are. It's hard to keep track of people. Boy, if we could get everybody back into the building on one Sunday, we might have a better chance to reconnect. So we encourage you to do that. In order to make sure we have time to reconnect, there'll be a meal after the service. We're asking you to bring a side dish, a dessert. We'll have meat here. We'll eat inside and outside, depending on the weather, wherever we can find space. But the goal is to loiter together and spend time renewing conversations, acquaintances, and uh, trying to make sure we have the kind of support we need to walk this road to heaven together. Here ends the message about community living. One of the things I'm never quite sure happens is I'm never quite sure what gets heard when we tell Bible stories or when we read passages in the scripture. And really the only way for me to evaluate what anyone has heard is to ask them to tell the story back to me. And so we've done that a few times and, and I have a little video I'd like to show you this morning. This is what one teenager said at teen camp a couple years ago when he was asked, what, tell us the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So this is what the teenager heard. Hello, my name is Christopher, and I will tell you this, I'm gonna tell you the story of the feeding of 5,000. As they were, you know, after Lord Jesus' preach, he says, he's like thinking to himself, and he also says, uh, well, these guys must be hungry. We gotta feed these guys, he tells his disciples. His disciples are like, whoa, I, we can't do that. We don't have enough food. We don't have, we, we have two fish and five bread. We can't feed that many people. Lord Jesus says, Nothing's impossible with God. He's like, and these these guys are like, whoa. I don't believe him. Well, they give him the basket, but doubtingly. Uh, and he rises it up, rises the basket up. He's, they're, they're, the disciples are thinking, what is this guy doing? What is he doing? Is he trying to do something? Because I don't believe he's gonna he's gonna do it. And he's well, Jesus is praying. He's praying. He's like, thank you, God, for this these people, and thank you for you know everything. And please give us you know food to feed these people. He he brings the basket down. And there's a whole ton of fish and bread. People are like, woohoo, we get to eat. I get to eat God's food. This is awesome. So Jesus breaks the bread and gives out the fish to his disciples. 
gives him, tells him to give it to the people. And the disciples are like, this is from God, have this piece of bread. This fish is from God, have this. And they all ate. And then they had 12 basket, baskets of food still left. Mostly fish, not a lot of bread. So I, I wonder what people hear uh, when we go through these stories. I hope we get maybe a little more accurate understanding than, than Christopher might have had. We're reading through this section of Mark. We're in the, in the center chapters and, and Mark has told us some very specific things that we need to have heard and we need to have learned from these stories. First, we've learned in Mark chapter one that Jesus is an amazing teacher. In Mark chapter two, we learn that Jesus is compassionate because he heals people of their diseases. In Mark chapter three, he's a leader and a role model. He appoints disciples. In Mark chapter four, he has unique insight into how the kingdom of God works and he has power over nature. He calms the storm. In Mark chapter five, he has power over the demon and spirit world. He also has power over life and death. And now we're told about those who follow Jesus. So they've heard and seen something, and now we're trying to figure out, did they get it? Did they figure out what they had seen and what they had heard? So these people, these 12 that Jesus sends out, they're the folks that Jesus is trying to teach about the details of the kingdom about the proclamation of the kingdom, about the values of the kingdom. And these 12 are gonna have some trouble figuring it out. Incidentally, just like the 12 tribes of Israel had trouble figuring out. So this is the Gospel of Mark, starting in the sixth chapter, the second half of the sixth verse. And I would invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mark 6, 6b. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and cured them. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while, for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. 
But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves have you? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. After saying farewell to them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. When he saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Lord, we pray that you would make your word clear to us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's interesting to me how often the Bible teaches us who to be by showing us what not to be. You might think that the Bible would paint a more attractive picture of the men who were closest to Jesus and who would become the leaders of the church in its infancy. After all, these disciples are going to become our heroes, the people we look up to. The fate of the church is going to rest in their hands. But let's be honest, in, in most of the Gospels, the disciples look more like the Keystone Cops. If you're too young to know who the Keystone Cops are, Google that later after the service, because I don't want you giggling in church in a few minutes. It's interesting to me that Jesus sends out these disciples to minister and to preach and to heal long, long before they have everything figured out. These guys do not have a big picture. They do not understand all that's going on. And this passage makes this abundantly clear. I think there's a hint here for us that we don't have to have everything figured out either in order to understand how to be useful in the kingdom of God. You really only have to know one thing. There's power in the name of Jesus. The, the power of Jesus is sufficient to transform life, to bring healing, to provide direction, to make everything new. He is powerfully reliable. And that's enough information for any of us to start to get to work. If you look at what Jesus tells his disciples to take with them when they're being sent out to minister, 
it should be obvious that he wants the disciples to travel light. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, one tunic will be enough, there's no luggage, no carry-on bag. Um, These guys aren't going to be welcomed because of their fine clothing. They won't be welcomed because of the size of their entourage. They're only going two by two. These are plain, ordinary guys who have nothing of themselves to commend themselves to anyone except they have been authorized by Jesus. All they carry is the name of Jesus. They are forced to rely on God and the grace of the people they encounter for everything. Any preparation they make for the journey will not be helpful in the success of the journey. It will only be based on the resources of Christ and the grace of the people they encounter. Wouldn't that feel a little uncomfortable for you? I mean, if you're getting on a plane this afternoon to go to Atlanta, do you want to carry on bag? I think you do. If Jesus says to you, leave your purse behind, are you going to feel immediately uncomfortable about that? I think there's a discomfort in trying to rely on Jesus at that level. That's a mystery worth contemplating. In any event, they go on the mission and lots of things happen. Then they all get back from the mission and they start to tell Jesus everything that they've done. Notice this. All the authority for the work came from Jesus. All the power for the work came from Jesus. All the resources for the work came from Jesus and from the people's hospitality that they encountered. So what is it they wanna talk about? What they did. Do you see the mismatch going on there? They wanna talk about what they did because they are self-absorbed and they are forgetting that they didn't do anything that Jesus didn't do for them and through them. He crafted the whole mission so they would have to be completely reliant on him and they still wanna talk about what they did. And so more lessons are needed. Lesson not learned. And so we head over to this place. We're gonna get away for some rest. Before we get there, the crowd gathers. Jesus talks to the people and everybody's hungry. And Jesus says, feed these guys. Next lesson. And they go, uh, what do you mean? I mean, we, we don't have the resources. We can't do that. Oh. I think to make the point that they don't have the resources, Jesus says, well, go find out what your resources are. I mean, maybe you have more resources than you think you have. And so they gather all the resources, and what do they have? Five loaves, two fish. Point proved. You don't have any resources. And the job is bigger than you can do. And the only way these people get fed is if you rely on me. It's the only way forward. Lord, it would take all kinds of money to feed these people. You do it. But we can't. Exactly. So so what do you do when you must, but you can't? Jesus looks to heaven, breaks the bread, 
shares what is present and feeds everyone through his disciples. You notice he gives the bread to the disciples and they present it to the people. I really wish I knew exactly how that happened. It says in the text that he gave the loaves to the disciples to present before the people. So the disciples received from Jesus more loaves than they had to start with. When did the dividing start? Did the bread multiply when Jesus touched it? Did he fill the baskets and give each disciple a basket? Or did the loaves multiply when the disciples set the loaves before the people? Did the people get to watch the bread multiply? Did it multiply just when Jesus broke it? I mean, regardless of how it happened, certainly the disciples knew exactly what was going on because they gathered the five loaves and the two fish to start with. They were on the front line of this miracle. They saw everything that happened. And when it was done, when every tummy was full, they each had the privilege of carrying, of bearing the weight of a leftover full, a basket full of leftovers. So Jesus, I think, makes the point again. In case you missed the multiplying loaves, remember how much you gave me, five and two, and now you're having to carry a basket full of leftovers. You're bearing the excess, the superabundance of relying on Christ in your own very hands. They each carry one of the 12 baskets of leftovers, I'm thinking. It's almost as if Jesus let them bear the burden of their doubt. They didn't have the faith to believe the people could be fed, and now they're carrying the leftovers after everyone has been fed. So night falls. Jesus sits out for a time of solitary prayer, and the disciples get in the boat to cross the water as Jesus has commanded them. What's Jesus praying? I don't know. Is he asking the Father how long it's gonna take these dim-witted disciples to understand? Maybe he's pleading for the Father to help these poor guys. We don't have any record to know how he thinks about all of this. But when he's done praying, when he sees their anxiety, he walks across the water to catch up with them and terrifies them in the process. He isn't trying to terrify them. He's walking on water. They think he's a ghost or something. They freak out. And then he calms them and he calms the sea. The passage said he hadn't really intended to join them in the boat, but you have to assume that when he sees how frantic they are, his compassion once again obligates him to step in close to calm them down. But they are so afraid when he stops and joins them, thinking he's a ghost or more. Maybe he just had to get in the boat to prove he wasn't a ghost. Maybe it was he had compassion for their level of fear. But actually, Mark tells us exactly what's going on when he closes his account of this story. The disciples are once again astounded when Jesus steps into the boat and the wind and waves calm down. I suspect their blood pressure and heartbeat didn't calm down, but the wind and waves calm down. They were afraid of the storm a moment ago. Now they're afraid of Jesus. And Mark says the reason is this. 
They're utterly amazed. The reason they're afraid is because they didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't understand about, they didn't learn the lesson, which was already at least the second lesson before. They still, they still didn't understand about the loaves. Well, what does that cryptic statement mean? They don't know that the God of history, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is acting through the Jesus who is seated right before them and is in fact before them in Christ. We know that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God is present in the boat with them and they don't understand it. They don't understand that the God of the wind and the waves is before them. The God that provided manna for the people of Israel in the wilderness has just provided the bread of heaven for his people again. That he is reliable, he is resourceful, he is powerful. And the reason they don't receive comfort from Jesus' presence is because they simply don't know who he really is. They don't know how much he loves them. They don't know the limits of his power. They just haven't figured out who it is in spite of all those things that Mark has told us that they've seen. They still don't understand who he is. And so when Jesus comes close, they're terrified. They don't understand the lesson of the loaves. And I wonder, what's our excuse? Do we understand the lesson of the loaves? I mean, we know who he is. We, we know what he can do. Do we rely on him? Or when the waves start to get a little high, do we immediately panic, thinking there's no one around who can calm the sea? Do we, do we trust him? Do we really believe he's reliable? Or does he just answer the prayers of other people and not me so much? Or I'm not getting the answer I want in this situation, so he probably doesn't care. Do, do I believe things about Jesus like that? If I do, I haven't understood the meaning of the loaves. I don't know who he is yet. Do we unburden ourselves to him when we find ourselves overwhelmed and having trouble believing? Or in those situations, do we just rely on our own strength, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and figure it's our, our job to just power forward and do the best we can. How do you rely on him? How do you do that practically? I think there's only one way. I think there's only one activity that results in us being able to rely on him, and that is prayer. You have to communicate with God. Unless you begin to talk to the one that you're relying on, unless you begin to make statements of reliance, unless you ask for his help in trusting him, you can't start on this journey of relying him. What does that look like? Do you talk about 
what you're doing in life, like the disciples did when they returned from that journey? Or do you acknowledge what God has enabled you to do as you consider the circumstances of your life? Do you ask him for what you need? Do you seek his direction in everything? Or do you still pretty much believe you get to make all your own choices and do whatever you want because after all, it's your own life? It's impossible to rely on God and to demand your own way at the same time. It's impossible to trust God and say, I trust you, but we'll do things my way. Those things are mutually exclusive. If we're going to rely and trust on God, we will have to have this conversation with him that is ongoing and continual. That's the only way we can express our reliance and receive what we need in order to rely on him. Are you able to rest in the middle of uncomfortable circumstances because God is present with you and you are confident of his immediate presence with you? Or does he have to calm every wind and wave before you can think straight? Now I understand that, that there's a battle involved in this sometimes. I understand that there are times when that which threatens us is so overwhelming, our first response is fear, and then we have to remember what we know to be true, and by the grace of God, ask for his help to switch our perspective. I understand that. I understand that especially the younger we are in Christ, the longer time it may take us to switch our thinking because it takes us maybe longer to remember to call on him, to ask for his help. I know this doesn't always happen immediately, but what we believe is that the spirit of Christ is not only present with us, he is in us, and that he is prompting us to rely on him, to call on him, to trust him, and when he prompts us to do that, if we will do that, then he begins to take things in hand, and he's reliable. Now, I don't know that his plan in every situation is to calm all the waves around you. I wish I could say I knew that, that the minute you relied on him and trusted him, that all the waves would be calm. But I do know that the moment Jesus is in the boat with you, you're safe regardless of what the sea does. Because he's with you. And he is the one who can navigate anything because his power is unlimited. But the question is, is there an extra seat in the boat for him? Or are you filling up all the space available in the boat? Have you have you learned the message of the loaves, which is he's able to supply whatever's needed. When things seem impossible, if he has spoken the word, we can count on his word. That he is present with us to make us into the kind of people who will rely on him, who will trust in him, who will accurately represent what life in the kingdom looks like. That's, that's what he's calling us to do and to be. Will, will we trust him?
Will we trust him rather than trusting ourselves? Will we commit ourselves to the prayer necessary to encountering this God who wants us to rely on him? Have you learned the message of the loaves? Are you willing to purposefully and consistently rely on him? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. And if we're not sure of the answer, we ask the Holy Spirit to help us discern the truth about ourselves uh, so that we're able to rely on him. It's in relying on him that we have confidence in him. We don't have to have confidence in our own gifts because we're not much. But God is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. So we trust in him. I'm gonna pray in a moment and if you'd like to pray during this time, you're welcome to as well. The altar is always a place where you can meet God in prayer. But we're gonna sing a song together so that we have time to consider, to listen to the voice of the Spirit and to uh, respond in our hearts according to how he calls. So let's pray together and then we will uh, sing together. Lord Jesus, forgive us if we are slow in learning the meaning of the loaves. Forgive us if our perspective is so limited that we really can't see you for who you are. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes more fully to see you for who you are, that you'd help us to trust you, that you would help us to submit the chaos of our lives, the circumstances that swirl around us chaotically to you, and enable us to trust you, to rely on you, and to follow your lead step by step. As we pray in the name of Christ, amen. May you trust in the living God. May you come to increasingly rely on him. May you be confident that he who began a good work in you will faithfully carry it on to completion to that great day. To the glory of God, amen.